0: So, the title of my study here tonight is Remaining Steadfast, and and so as we go through Acts 5 tonight, um, we're going to point out some things about the early church and them remaining steadfast, but we're also going to take the time just to observe some other things that we see here in chapter 5, and just a few introductory things that I want to share before we get into it, but, you know, the book of Acts... Um, here tonight, what we're going to look at and what's already happened, Jesus was doing a mighty work through his church. I mean, he had sent his spirit as he had promised at at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people came to faith. We are told in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so the spirit of God was moving. People were coming to faith. And in Acts 3... Um, There's a story of the lame man that was healed, and that leads to an opportunity for Peter to preach again to a crowd the gospel, just as he had done in in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. And as a result of that, in Acts chapter 4, the church faced its first attack from, from outside. Peter and John are arrested and brought before the very same religious leaders that Jesus was tried before. And Peter, there filled with the Holy Spirit, preached Jesus to them just as he had done in Acts 2 again. And he and John were threatened by these leaders and released, being told not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And, of course, they didn't listen to that. Praise the Lord. And this leads the church to go in prayer, though, in Acts chapter 4, and ask the Lord for boldness to speak the word of the Lord. And we'll come back to that point of the church praying. I mean, it was a big part of the early church. So that brings us to Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, we'll see the church face an attack from within in the beginning of the chapter. And then we're going to see them again face an attack from without. And despite that, we will see the church remain steadfast. And 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight is a verse I want to share, and we'll come back to it here at the end tonight. But there Paul says... Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the, is not in, in the Lord is not in vain. And we'll, again, we'll come back to that here in just a little while. But let's begin by reading the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much?' She said, "'Yes, for so much.' Then Peter said to her, "'How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord?' Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And I say no doubt, right? (laughs) Great fear came upon the church. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a couple of times where the Lord did something similar, where he took sin against him very seriously, and he, it was a stern judgment that happened. And uh, You think of uh, Aaron's sons um, in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, just as the uh, tabernacle worship was starting, and it says they offered profane fire, and it says that they were consumed before the Lord, they, they died, and then you have the story of Achan and Joshua, I believe chapter seven, where they've just entered the promised land. God was taking them in, but Achan had taken something he wasn't supposed to take. And as a result, him and his family were all judged. And so, both of those cases, just as here, is kind of the beginning of something new that God was doing. And God had severe, stern judgment for what they did. And, you know, I think Ananias and Sapphira here they were messing around with some things of the Lord. And we're going to kind of talk about that as we consider what takes place here. You know, this is a sad story about this couple. Um, in the last chapter, as I said, the enemy had brought pressure from without the church, but now he's seeking to try to bring pressure from within to bring a challenge to attack what was happening. And he sought to do this by taking advantage of this couple. And allowing them to do what they, and encouraging them, I should say, to do what they did. In John 13, 35, Jesus said this, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love from, for one another. And so, from the very beginning of the church, the Spirit of God was moving in the church to help them to love one another. And this love was demonstrated by them caring for physical needs. And, and we're going to read in here in just a minute the last few verses of chapter 4 and kind of get some of the story of what was happening before Ananias and Sapphira did what they did. But in Acts 2, and 45, it speaks of this also, this caring for one another, this love that was happening. They were selling possessions, and they were meeting each other's needs. And, and again, we've, we see that here in these verses we're about to read here at the end of Acts chapter 4. And let me just read verses 32 to 37. It says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet." and distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also, also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so <clears throat> they had just witnessed um, Barnabas and others doing this thing that they do here in Acts chapter 5 of selling possessions and taking it and bringing it to the church to meet the needs of the people in the church, right? And so, um, you know, it was a normal part of the early church, what was happening here in Acts 5 with them giving of, of possessions, giving what they had. The problem came though for them is that they had agreed that they were gonna not that they, that they were gonna tell people that they sold it for more. And, and keep back some of it for themselves. And so they were going to lie to God and to the church and try to make them believe that they were more generous than what they were. That's, what, that's the problem here with Ananias and Sapphira. They said, well, we sold it for this much, when in reality they had sold it for more and kept some of it back. And so <clears throat> I just want to briefly talk here, you know, because we have an opportunity to talk about it from this passage, this thing of giving to the Lord. You know, there's two things I want to mention about it when it comes to giving and our giving to the Lord. One, it's an opportunity to invest in the eternal when we give to the Lord. We get to use what God has placed in our hand to make an internal investment. When we invest for the future in this world, we do it in hope that we'll get a return, right? I mean, I don't think there's any of us that invest for retirement um, hoping that we're not going to get anything back at the end. Um, We hope we're going to get a return on our investment, but we're not guaranteed that, right? In this world, there's no guarantees when it comes to that kind of thing. We do it hoping we will, but when we invest financially in God's kingdom, we are guaranteed that there is going to be a return. God is going to reward giving and investing into his kingdom, and so we're being given the opportunity to take what will pass away, right, money, money. It's going to pass away. Everything that we have in this life is one day, and I like to remember this myself because it helps me with deal with the frustration of things breaking, that it's all going to burn one day, right? <laughs> it's all going to burn. But we get to take this worldly treasure, and God gives us the opportunity to invest in the eternal, and invest into that which will not pass away, guaranteed that there will be a return on that investment. And secondly, and I think just as importantly, it's an opportunity to worship the Lord. And, you know, listen to how Paul describes the giving of the church in Philippi in Philippians 4.18. There Paul says, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so Paul rightly describes their giving of what they have, their worldly treasure, to God's kingdom as worship. It's worship to the Lord. And so Ananias and Sapphira had that opportunity. They had the opportunity to invest in God's kingdom, and they had the opportunity to worship the Lord with what God had given them. And that's, to me, just another part of why this story is so sad. It's so sad that they allowed themselves to be ripped off. They had the resources that God had given to them, and yet, they didn't use it wisely. They were seeing others sell their possessions, right, and give it to the Lord. And it seems that they were motivated to give for the wrong reasons. They desired a recognition for their gift. So they attempted to make people believe, again, they were giving all of it, so that people would say, wow, aren't Ananias and Sapphira generous, You know and to begin to get praise and and to receive reward from others noticing them and so they were lying for their status to increase in the church in the early church and Jesus warned of this uh, thing in Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 and I'm just gonna read that there Jesus said take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men will himself reward you openly. And so there Jesus is telling us that when we go to invest in his kingdom with what God has given, that we are to do it quietly, right? To do it with no fanfare, no desire to seek the attention of others. Because if we do that, we're gonna get our reward. That's gonna be our reward, them noticing us. And as far as eternal investment, there's going to be no value there for us. Now, I think it's interesting to note what Peter said to Ananias in verse 4. And this really stood out to me as I was studying this. Peter there says to him, "'While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God.'" And you see, the sin was not in keeping some for themselves. The sin was in lying to God and seeking recognition for being more generous than what they were. And I think it's important to note from what Peter says here, what you and I have is ours. The Lord has given it to us, yes, but it's ours now to do what we want to with And as you think about that, that's a huge responsibility that we've been given. It's a very huge responsibility. And I want us also to think about the fact that this applies to every one of us. It doesn't matter whether you're really rich and have a lot, or maybe you don't have much at all. Whatever you have, though, has been given to you by God. It's in your hands. And how will you use it? I think that's the question. And again, sadly, Ananias and Sapphira used what was placed in their hands to again to try to gain recognition by making themselves look to be more generous. And in so doing, they not only lied, they lied not only to the church, but to the Lord. And they missed out on the opportunity. This is what's so sad to me. They missed out on the opportunity to worship the Lord. They missed out on the opportunity to invest in his kingdom for eternal reward. And so... It's a very sad story at the beginning of the church, right? And, you know, what's interesting also about this is, you know, nothing has changed. The enemy still tempts people to seek recognition in the church and to seek to gain fame for themselves, especially in the area of giving. And so we must be careful, right? We must be careful that we don't do what we do to get recognition from others, but that we do it because it's just out of worship to the Lord, and we want to invest in what God is doing. And I, and, and I don't want us to lose sight of how powerful that is, to think that we can take stuff that's going to pass away and be gone forever one day and get to have an eternal reward for using it for God's kingdom. Um, so, a couple of things I want us to just point out and learn from this story before we move on, besides the things that we've already talked about. One is, God desires holiness in his church. 1 Peter one 15 through 15-16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. There is no room, I think, in, obviously in God's church, also for lying or hypocrisy among God's people. And that's what we see again with Ananias and Sapphira here. They were playing the hypocrite. They were lying. And First Peter 2.1 says, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. And so why such a severe punishment? I kind of alluded to this earlier, but God was establishing his church. And he wanted his church to know how serious he was for them to be holy and to regard him as holy. And I think also not to mess around with God's things, right? Not to mess around with this privilege of being able to give to the Lord and taint it with selfish ambition and um, seeking to, to puff yourself up and gain reward out of it. And again, you know, sadly, that still goes on in the church today. You know, people still seek, are tempted and seek to do the same thing. And secondly, another thing I feel we learn from this story is to be a good steward of what God has given. You know, again, God has given you and I everything we have, and so we should seek to be a good steward of it by seeking him and how to use it, right? Asking the Lord, how do you want me to use what you've given? Seek to worship him with what he's placed in your hands and seek to invest in his kingdom, and I think as being good stewards, there's a couple things we're going to seek to do. We're going to guard ourselves against being deceived by this thing that they were deceived in, seeking recognition. And we're also going to guard ourselves from being manipulated by others to give. And I think that's an important thing that we will do if we're going to be good stewards. You know, God is not poor. That's not the point of any of this. God is not poor. And I've loved, I mean, Pastor Chuck has often said in the messages that he gave, you know, of hearing stories of guys tell these stories about how if people didn't give to their ministry, it was going to fail and it was going to end. And Pastor Chuck would always say, well, it probably should, (laughs) right? Because they were seeking to manipulate people. And, and, and they were seeking to take advantage of, of people. God's not poor. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything we have. But he allows us to get to give it to him, to invest in his work. And, you know, it's also important that we, just as much as that we not be manipulated, that we never be a part of manipulating others either, right? And, Um, No matter how that looks, I mean, we should not be involved in seeking to manipulate people. We have to be careful that we don't do that. And so for people to give out of worship to the Lord, they have to be free free from their heart to do it. And that's not possible if a person is manipulated. And, you know, 2 Corinthians 9-7, Paul says, and this is one of the major principles in the New Testament for giving, says, let each one gives as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I don't know about you, but I can guarantee you I'm not very cheerful if somebody's manipulated me to do something. Um, There is no cheerfulness at all there. And so the only way a person can give cheerfully is that they have the freedom just to give out of of worship to the Lord as God has moved upon their heart. And one more thing I just want to note here uh, before we move on in Acts chapter 5. I think we see in this account the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. Because in verse 3, we see Peter knew that Ananias was lying about giving all the money. Only Ananias and his wife Sapphira knew about it. They had conspired together. But Peter knew because the Spirit, I believe, revealed it to him. The Spirit showed him that they were lying. And I believe this was the gift of the word of knowledge at work in the early church. It's a gift that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians twelve eight. It's having knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise have unless the Spirit of God had revealed it to you. And so I can only imagine what it must have been like for Peter to hear the Spirit say, Ananias is lying. He's misrepresenting what he's doing. And, um, and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of the Lord revealing something to you, but definitely it can be a little disconcerting at first. It's like, am I sure that's what I'm hearing? But we have to trust the Spirit of God works this way. He reveals things that we wouldn't otherwise know, and so we have to listen to the voice of the Spirit in our lives. <clears throat> so as we move on in this chapter... You know, we're going to see, like, as I said, the church remained steadfast. And one of the points I want to bring out from this first section, and I think that I see here in these first 11 verses, is that as they moved on, they did not allow the sin of others to keep them from remaining steadfast. And I think too often people get thrown off of remaining steadfast because somebody does something like this. What took place here in Acts chapter 5? Somebody, you know, plays the hypocrite, or somebody takes advantage of someone, or someone deceives someone, or mistreats someone. And because of that person's sin, the person, others, then walk away from remaining steadfast. They walk away from the Lord. And I'm sure many of you know people today that no longer go to church, no longer walk with the Lord, because someone they knew did something they shouldn't have done, maybe misrepresented the Lord. And so what I find encouraging from this, as we see here in verses 12 through 16, just a minute, they just continued on. They didn't stop serving the Lord because someone in their midst had failed. And we'll come back to that point at the end. And so let's go on to verses 12 through 16. And it says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by night might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so we see here the continuing mighty works of the Spirit in the church, working through the apostles, working signs and wonders through them. And so what's happening here? The ministry of Jesus is being continued. That's what's happening, because this is what Jesus did, right? Jesus healed and delivered people. And that's what we see here happening in the book of Acts. So why was the Spirit working like this through them? Well, one thing is certainly God cares for people. And so God was ministering through them to heal people and to deliver people because God cares for people. And, I, you know, you look in the Gospels, you see that over and over again with Jesus. You see the Father's heart. And, um, you know, one of the big battles Jesus had with religious leaders was that whole thing of healing on the Sabbath, right? I mean, that really was one of the things that kind of pushed them over the edge, was Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. And the point there being was, is God cares more about people and what people need he cares about all your rules and regulations that you want to follow. And that's what had happened with them. They had had many things they had added on. It wasn't God's Sabbath. It was their Sabbath. And they didn't care about people. But Jesus demonstrated over and over that he and the Father cared about people. And so I think that's one thing that's happening here in the early church. But I don't think it's the only reason for the mighty works that were being done. And I want to read to you from John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. And this is Jesus, um, part of his last message to the disciples before his crucifixion. And there, speaking of the Spirit of God, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." And so Jesus said that the apostles would bear witness of him, and the Spirit would testify of him through them. And that is what is happening here in the book of Acts, as the mighty miracles were worked. The Spirit was mightily working through them and testifying of Jesus, that Jesus was who he said he was. And the result of this we see in verse 14 is that multitudes of men and women were added to the church. And You know, praise God for that, right? And may we desire still today that God, because I believe God still wants to work like this. He still wants to deliver people and heal people and work through his church, not only to touch people's lives because he cares about them, but also that most importantly, the greatest concern and care he has is that people be saved, that people come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, This is what the Spirit of God was doing through these apostles as they ministered in the early church. Now, Luke mentions something in verse 15 that's rather interesting. He says that people were bringing the sick out so that the shadow of Peter might fall on them. Now, Luke does not state people were healed because of Peter's shadow falling on them. And if they were, it was not because Peter's shadow had power. That, that, that is something that we want to just realize. It wasn't because of some magic in Peter's shadow. And I just want to read a quote from David Guzik about this. He says, It may sound crazy that one could be healed by the touch of a shadow. We know a touch of Jesus' clothing healed a woman. There wasn't anything magical in the garment, but it was the way that her faith was released. And the same, there was no power in Peter's shadow itself, but there was power when a person believed in Jesus to heal them. And so, again, it doesn't state that people were healed. It kind of alludes to it. And so if people were, it wasn't because it was Peter's shadow. It was because they were believing in Jesus to heal them. And it was, I believe, a point of release of their faith. And you know, if you go further in Acts, in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, Luke describes something amazing there. He talks about the fact that Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons were brought to the sick and people were healed and people were delivered. And so I would say again, it wasn't that it was Paul's handkerchief. It was a point of release of people's faith. People were believing in Jesus to heal them and God used that as a practical, physical thing for that faith to be released and for them to be healed. And, um, you know, today... I believe we have something that the Lord has given to us, the church, and a prescription that he's given for healing. And that's James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And I want to read that. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so... There we have this prescription God's given for healing in the church. Now, you know, one of the many challenges for me, I must confess, is that I'm a, that lo, very logical in my thinking. I'm a very logical, black and white kind of person, okay? And so there's the part of me in that that's like, well, why does this even have to be the case, right? Why can't someone just pray and God heal them? And certainly that can happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. But God has given this and saying, look, if you're sick, go to the elders, be anointed with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal. And so we have seen that happen. God, we have seen God heal people. And I'm not saying, and nor does God say that it's every time, but God heals people that way. And it's not because of the oil being magical. It's not because necessarily of the people that are praying, but it's because of the step of faith to go and to ask for prayer and to believe that Jesus will heal. That's, and that's that point of the faith being, um, being enacted. You're stepping out. And I think also there's a bit of humility involved in it too. I know, again, for me personally, you know, and maybe I... It's probably because of pride. I don't like to think of it that way, but it probably is. I don't like to go ask for things. I don't like to go make myself known that I need something. I mean, I'm thankful for GPS today, because I don't have to ask for directions. I never, that was something that, thankfully I missed most of that. By the time, just a few years of maps for me, and then it was, GPS was introduced, but, um, but I think it's a thing where we humble ourselves, right? And we have a need, and so we go. And we go in faith, and we ask, and the Lord does heal that way. The Lord does work. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to know more of the story by what Luke was talking about there in, Luke, in chapter 5, verse 15. But I think this is a little bit of possibly what was happening. It was just that point of release of their faith, and, and Jesus and him having that opportunity. Just again, as Guzik mentions of the woman who just believed that if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she was. So <clears throat> these are the things we see happening. And this brings us now to the last portion here, the rest of the chapter, Acts 17 through 42, and where we see an attack from the outside of the church, from the outside upon the church again. And so let's look at verses 17 through 26. It says, Then the high priest rose up, and all those were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in, a common, in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, and brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, heard that, They entered the temple early in the morning and taught, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside." Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And... So again, we have an attack here from the outside of the church, and I'm just wanna for considering verses 17 through 26 at the moment and deliverance from prison. Of course, the enemy was not going to sit by and let continue what was happening. Because as I said in verse fourteen, multitudes of both men and women were being added to the church. And so the enemy wasn't gonna sit quietly by and not bring opposition. And so the religious leaders come against the apostles and have them put in prison. The first time in Acts 4, it was just Peter and John, but now it was all the apostles were thrown into prison. And we're told here that they did it out of jealousy. And that may sound familiar, and it should, because it's the same reason the religious leaders went after Jesus. Matthew 27, 18 says that Pilate knew that they had handed Jesus over because of jealousy, And so so these religious leaders had the same issue with these guys. They were jealous because God was working. God was drawing people to hear their teaching, and people were being saved and delivered, and they were jealous because it was robbing them of their glory. It was robbing them of their attention, and they didn't like it. Now, there's a few humorous things, I think, that take place um, here in the story. While I don't want to make light of the fact of them being thrown in prison, but there are some humorous things that happen. <clears throat> First of all, these guys are Sadducees. And we're told in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, it says "Therefore, Sadducees say there is no resurrection, so they don't believe in the afterlife, and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. So these guys, these Sadducees, were very secular in their religious beliefs. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirit. And so they had a very um, humanistic, earthly view of things, right? And so the, the apostles are arrested. They're thrown into prison. And one of the first things to me that's a little humorous about this is how does God deliver them from prison, he sends an angel to deliver them. The very thing that these guys didn't believe in, he sends to deliver the apostles from prison. And and verse 20, I want us to notice what the angel tells them to do. The angel tells them to go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so the angel tells them to go back doing the very thing they were thrown in jail for, and to go in the place they would be most noticed by those who had put them in prison, right? The angel didn't tell them to go out into the wilderness, go in a secret place and speak. He told them, go back to the temple. Go back to the place where you were before and where you're going to be noticed again and begin to preach. Um, and so I think that's just, a, that's how the Lord works, right? The Lord doesn't want us to hide. The Lord wants us to go and to be bold. Um, And so, and the angel also tells them to speak all the words of of this life. And I just want to pause just a moment and talk about that. You know, Christianity is not a religion. It's not. Religion and all the religions of the world are an attempt by man to reach God. That's what religion is. It is the finite seeking to reach the infinite. That's what religion is all about. While Christianity is just the opposite, it's God coming to man and providing a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ and his payment for our sin on the cross. It's God doing all the work. It's God coming and bringing to us the opportunity for a relationship and us just simply receiving it. He brings us from death to life when we call upon him for salvation. He gives us life in this life. He also gives us eternal life. And that's something that no religion can do. And that's what the angel tells them to go to. Go speak the words of this life. This is the only message that has life. Go speak that to the people. And I love in verse 21, we see the obedience of the apostles. It says, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Right? They didn't wait around. They didn't say, well, we've had a rough night. Let's go get a nap, and maybe we'll come back in a few days. They went right away the next morning, early in the morning, and began to teach the people. And, you know, again, just the importance of that obedience. And I think this is another point we see to the point of remaining steadfast. It's not only remaining and going on when others fail us and they do the wrong thing. There's also a point of being obedient. It's an important part of us remaining steadfast is that we be obedient to the Lord. I think steadfastness requires obedience. And so the high priest and those with him called for these guys to be brought back to the trial. And in verses 22 through 25, this is another part of the story that I find humorous. The officers sent for these guys to be brought back and they go and they find the guards guarding. But what are they guarding? They're guarding an empty jail. I mean, I, it would be interesting to see, actually see this. I mean, here are these guys, they're out guarding, right? And they open the doors and find there's nobody here. <laughs> so what are you guys guarding? There's, they're gone. And, uh, and the religious leaders are, these guys come back and tell them, look, the guys, the, they were there guarding and no one was inside. And so they're still trying to figure all of this out. And then they hear the report That these guys are right back in the temple and it says there, look in verse 25, look the men whom you put in prison are staying in the temple and teaching the people. And that just had to be a head scratcher for these guys. They had to be like, just what in the world are we going to do with these men? And obviously there was nothing they could do because these guys were committed to the work of the Lord and to what God had called them to do. Now, if you notice in verses 29 through 32, they bring the Peter and the Apostles back to them. And actually in verse 28, they get back in, and the religious leaders say, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on, on us. And I want us just to notice there that these religious leaders they were unwilling even to say the name Jesus right? They couldn't even bring themselves to say it. It says, why do you teach in this name? And they called him this man, but they refused and were unwilling to say the name Jesus. And in Peter's and the apostles' response, let's just read that in verses 29 through 32, it says, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, right? They said his name, whom you have murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so while the religious leaders were unwilling to say the name Jesus, Peter and the apostles were just the opposite. And it's something that I find very interesting, and to me, it's one of the great testimonies to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, is that you can talk about any other name, and people will shake their heads and agree with you and be happy, but you want to say Jesus and talk about Jesus, that makes people upset. They don't want to talk about him. You know, that bothers them. And... And the question has to be, is this, like, why does that bother you? Like, what did Jesus ever do that make you feel so opposed to him? Right? He came and he served others. He gave his life for you. He, he was that servant leader. I mean, there was nothing about his life that should make people mad, except for the fact that he is light and he exposes darkness. Right? And he is the only way of salvation. And, you know, Acts 4.12, it says, Now is there salvation, nor is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so that's why the name is so controversial, is because it's the only name by which people can be saved. And and so, Peter and them testified boldly. You know, the Holy Spirit was at work for them and through them, and they, they did not back down. And, of course, Jesus had warned them of this in Mark 13, 9-11. He says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see happening here. We see the Holy Spirit speaking to them, giving them the words to say to these religious leaders. And hearing the response, you know, it says that, they, in verse 33, that they were furious, and they plotted to kill them. And that word furious there means to be cut to the quick, to be infuriated. And I find that interesting, because what I think the Holy Spirit is describing to us here, is that, of course, there was anger, but the anger was a result of them being under the conviction of the Spirit. The conviction of the Spirit was upon them, and they were angry about it. And, and sadly, in their case, instead of being angry, sadly, they were, not, they were angry and not willing to humble themselves and willing to receive the message. And instead, they rejected it. But <clears throat> I do again find it interesting. That was the conviction of the Spirit. The conspir- Jesus had said that the Spirit, would, when he comes, would convict the world of righteousness and of judgment and of sin. And the Spirit of God was doing that here. He was convicting these guys. And so <clears throat> I think And one thing to take from this, as we share with people, if people get angry, I think often we can realize that that's because the conviction of the Spirit is coming upon them. And so don't let that intimidate us. Know that the Lord, the Spirit's at work. And pray that that person's eyes will be opened and don't take it personally, right? Because they're not angry with us, they're angry with the Lord because their sin and their separation from God is being revealed and exposed. And so there was one among um, these guys here, Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law. And he stood up and he gave some advice to all the council. And he talked about the fact of a couple of other religious leaders that were in their history who, when they died... Eventually, the people that followed them dispersed and, and, and went away. And, and so um, his conclusion in verse 38 is, out. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But as if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. And so it was some wise advice. And I believe here that in the Spirit of God can speak through anyone, and I believe the Spirit of God was speaking through him and helping them to realize that, look, you can't fight against God. You're not going to be successful as it of, if it's of the Lord. And again, here, I think we see further testimony to the fact that it is the truth, right? It's the truth because it survived. Christianity has survived for over for 2,000 years. And Jesus died. He's at, with the Father. He rose again and his work and ministry is carried on through the church. And so, just as he said, if it wasn't of God, it would go away. But because it's of God, it has remained. And, and that's the testimony we see here in, in this passage. Now, in verses 41 through 42, as we begin <clears throat> to wrap it up here, we see joy while suffering. I'm going to read those. It's, so they departed from the presence of the council, um, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And now, <clears throat> we didn't read it, but before they let them go, um, it says that they beat them, um, back in verse 40, and commanded them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. So this time they weren't just let go, they were beaten And commanded not to speak and then let go. And then I love what we find here. They're just back out speaking about Jesus again. You know, they're back out proclaiming the truth. So we see them remaining steadfast despite physical persecution. And I think often remaining steadfast in our faith and our walk with the Lord will involve us enduring suffering. It won't always be being beaten by somebody, as these guys were, But it is going to be, at many times, involve an attack and enduring difficult things. And if if we're not willing to endure those difficult things, we're not going to be steadfast. We're not going to remain steadfast as the early church did. And as we conclude here, I want to bring us back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And again, there Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that word steadfast that's there means to be firmly or solidly in a place, firm, steadfast. And so my question for me and for all of us tonight is are we firmly and solidly in the place that we're following and that we're going to follow Jesus? Are we going to be steadfast And are we going to continue to follow him? If we're going to be steadfast, as the early church was, we must be willing to do, again, I think the things that we see here. One is not be swayed by other sin and failure. Simply just follow Jesus. (laughs) Follow him, right? Don't worry about what other people do. And I want us to consider this. Do we really want to ever be in the place... Of one day telling the Lord that we ceased being steadfast because this person did this, whatever the this is. I mean, how is that really going to sound when we stand before the Lord? If we say, well, so-and-so, they offended me. They hurt my feelings. You know, how is that going to go over? Do we really think that that's going to go over well with the Lord? That we ceased remaining steadfast. And so his call to us is just simply follow me. People will fail, people will do the wrong thing. It does happen. We are called to maintain steadfastness simply by following Jesus. And secondly, we see here in Acts chapter 5, as I already mentioned, the importance of walking in obedience. When the Lord speaks, obey and do it quickly, like they did. That's a part of being steadfast, is just simply obeying the Lord quickly in those things that he tells us to do. And now, obviously, there's general things that the Lord has told all of us to do, but then there's specific things that the Lord has told each of us to do that we're to be obedient in. And you know what those things are. And if you feel like you don't know what they are, I encourage you to go seek the Lord and let him speak to you. And whatever it is he's telling you to do, to, be, to do it quickly, to be obedient. And as a result, you're going to be remaining steadfast because you're obeying him. And then lastly, as, just as they were, be willing to endure suffering. You know, Following the Lord is often not easy. And one of the things I love about the Lord is the Lord's always honest with us. Lord, nowhere along the way deceived us. And Jesus said that in this world you'd have tribulation. Jesus didn't say, follow me, and it will be a bed of roses, and there's never going to be conflict or adversity. He said nothing of the sort, and he said just the opposite. And so we have to be willing to endure the suffering and suffer if we're going to be steadfast, if we're going to be steadfast until the end. Now, a couple things, again, as we're wrapping up here, that I want to note that help them and to remain steadfast. They didn't do this on their own. We're not reading the stories of some mighty Christians that through their great strength and might, they were able to do this. That is not the story. And if you think at all it is, I encourage you to go read the Gospels and hear some of the things that they said, Peter being one of them, right? Peter was good at putting his foot in his mouth and saying some some things that he shouldn't say at the times and being a little reckless and James and John ready to call down fire from heaven upon somebody and, you know, the list goes on, right? I mean, so these weren't super Christians and so how did they remain steadfast? I think if you read in the book of Acts, you'll see that they were people of prayer, right? They got together and they cried out to the Lord, Lord, we need you. We are desperate for you. Help us, Lord, to do what you've called us to do. And so we as the church, we have to gather together and pray, not just on our own, but as the body of Christ, we have to gather and pray and be together in prayer if we're going to be steadfast. And secondly about them is that they were filled with the Spirit. And you'll see over and over again, being filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. They had and realized that they were dependent upon the power that only the Spirit of God could provide. And it was because of the Spirit of God that they were able to remain steadfast. And so if we are going to endure to the end, if we're going to remain steadfast, let's be people of prayer. Let's be people that are being filled with the Spirit and dependent upon the Spirit so that we can accomplish what the Lord wants us to accomplish. And so the worship team can come up and we're going to close with a song and with a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that... Lord, you've left, as Paul said, these things as examples for us, Lord, so that we can learn and so we can grow. And I thank you, Lord, for just simple people, Lord, in your word who were dependent upon your spirit, Lord, who were people who knew that they needed to pray. And Lord, I pray for us, Lord, that that would be what we do, that we, in order to remain steadfast, would be people of prayer people, Lord, dependent upon you and looking to you and the power of your spirit to work through us, Lord. And so, Lord, give us strength to endure persecution. Lord, help us in suffering and help us to be, Lord, quick to obey you. Lord, Lord, help us, Lord, to not let what others do sway us from remaining steadfast. Lord, help us to simply, as Jesus, you told Peter, follow me. Lord, I pray you would help us to do that. Lord, thank you, God, for your call upon our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you desire each one of us to simply follow you. And Lord, we just humbly ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.